evening and welcome to our, our midweek Bible study. On Thursday nights we're going through the Bible, book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're in this amazing book of Isaiah, actually almost done with this amazing book of Isaiah. So if my math is correct, seven chapters left. We're going to do one chapter tonight. We left off last week in chapter 58. So tonight, chapter 59, and very interesting chapter that's before us tonight. I know the Lord has a word for us tonight uh, in this chapter. So why don't we pray? We'll just ask God to bless our time together in His Word. If you would, please join with me. Thank you so much, Lord. Lord, please, at this time, will you, by the Holy Spirit, just settle us and quiet our minds, <laughs> settle our hearts, and just all the anxiety and stress and pressure and all of the things that we're dealing with in our busy lives these days, and especially with everything that's going on in the world today. This time on Thursday nights for us represents a, a true sanctuary in every sense of the word. It's a, it's a place, a safe place, a beautiful place that we can come to and, and just put all of that aside and open up our Bibles and open up our hearts open up our eyes so we can see, our ears so we can hear, because you are going to speak in and through your word. That's not the question. The question isn't, are you going to speak? You're going to speak. But the question is, are we going to hear, and more importantly, take heed to your word? That's why we're here tonight, Lord. We are readily admitting that we are hungry and thirsty for you, and desperate for you, really, truth be known. And we know that only you can satiate that need that we have in our souls for you. So Lord, we, we really need for you to minister to us and speak to us and show to us what it is that you would have us to see in this chapter that we have before us tonight. So bless our Bible study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. Hey, what do you think about the title that I chose for tonight's Bible study? You like that? <laughs> I'm the problem. All right, let's just close in prayer. I think we got it, right? <laughs> You realize that, right? You're the problem. I'm the problem. That's what this chapter before us tonight is about, actually. It's about the problem of sin and the suffering that always ensues because of sin. And the problem is me and not anyone else. And certainly, as we're about to see, <laughs> the Lord is not the problem. Now, I, I know that can seem like and sound like a firm grasp of the obvious, but I mean, that's what the prophet Isaiah is inspired to write about concerning this problem. 
the only way I know how to say it, and I say it often, is that God has a problem. Not that God has problems, but the problem God has is us. <laughs> we are the problem. And again, as we're about to see, it's almost like the people in Isaiah's day were unwilling to acknowledge that they were the problem, that their sin was the problem, that the suffering and the consequences because of their sin was because of their sin. And they could not lay the blame at the feet of anyone, and certainly not the Lord. But isn't it true that like them then, so too we now are prone to blame everything and everyone else but ourselves for the problems in our lives. And when I talk about us being the problem, I, I already know the reaction. And it's really more of a reaction than a response. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And the reason I know about what the reaction is, is because I have the same reaction that is in my flesh. As the Apostle Paul writes, I know that in my flesh there, there dwells no good thing. It almost sounds noble and, you know, spiritual. I know that in me there dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. And you're like, yeah, wow, Paul, that's great. You know what he's saying? This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about, inspired by the Holy Spirit writing. He is saying, I know that I am rotten through and through. How about that? In other words, I'm the problem. But see, my flesh chafes at that. Just the mention of that, the notion that it's me that's the problem. My sin, my state, I'm the one to blame. I have no one to blame but myself. That's how we say it, right? You have no one to blame but yourself. But they weren't doing that. They actually had the audacity to infer that the blame lay at the feet of the Lord. And that's what we're going to see right out of the chute here in verse 1. You ready? Here we go. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Translated, it, the Lord's hand being too short to save is not the problem. His hand is not too short. He can save. And the problem also isn't that his hand is too short to save. The problem is not that his ear is too heavy to hear. In other words, that's not the problem, you guys. That's what the problem is not. Now here's what the problem is. Verse 2. You ready? Should we bow our heads and close our eyes? You can slip out right now before it, because <laughs> we're going to get right up into your grill. 
well, my grill too. <laughs> Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins. That's the problem. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the problem. It's not that his hand is too short to save or his ears too heavy to hear. No, he, he, he can save. He hears. That's not the problem. You are the problem and your sin is the problem and your iniquity is the problem. Now we're going to get a little bit more specific, verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood. You got blood on your hands. And your fingers with iniquity. Notice, hands, fingers, lips, tongue. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one, verse 4, calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. And then verse 5, it gets worse. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Wow, that's pretty graphic. Well, it needs to be. Because see, God has a problem. Again, God doesn't have problems, but the problem is that God has to show them them and that they are the problem and their sin is the problem. And so he has to describe very graphically in detail just how sinful and wicked and evil their iniquity is. Verse 6, their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. We actually saw this last week in chapter 58, the fist of wickedness. I mean, really, this is a description of a people that were violent, wicked, evil. I mean, how about this imagery of conceiving iniquity? There was actually a birthing, a conceiving of iniquity. That's what they were doing. They had blood on their hands, lies on their lips, violence in their hands, their fingers, their mouth, their tongue, what they did and what they said, evil to the core. Verse 7, we go from hands and mouth to feet. Their feet run to evil. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not running away from it. They're running to it in haste. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting 
and destruction are in their paths. So what's happening here? What, what is this saying here? Well, I think it speaks to how that no matter how dismissive we are about sin, and we are dismissive about our sin, we always shed it in a more favorable and palatable and amicable light. Oh, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm not really hurting anybody. Yes, you are. And so we tend to and are prone to sort of um, dismiss and depreciate the seriousness of our sin. And here God is saying, you're not going to get away with it. Nice try. No matter how dismissive we are about our sin, or even our efforts to cover our sin, this is how God sees our sin. He sees everything. Now that can have one of two effects on us, one good, one not so good. The one not so good is God sees everything we do. No matter how dismissive we are of it, or how covering up we are of it, and we do try to cover it up, but God sees all of it. He sees the making haste to run to evil, to shed innocent blood, this act of violence in their hands and even their mouths, physically abusive, verbally abusive. I know, we, again, we talked about this last week. I won't get into it again tonight, but just the way we treat other people. God sees everything, and God sees it for what it is no matter how we try to pretty and tidy it up. And again, sort of make it so it's not, it's not that bad. No, it is bad. It is bad. This is how God sees it. Verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. I know it's um, kind of dorky, but you know those sayings, you know, no, uh, uh, this is why I have notes. Uh, no God, no peace, or N-O and then K-N-O-W. Can somebody help me out, please? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Whatever, whoever said that, thank you so much. Holy Spirit, you got to take that one and take it from there. Uh, if, if you know God, you'll know peace. If there's no God, N-O God, there's no peace, N-O peace. Okay, are we good now? All right, that's the best I got, so that's all you're going to get. Here's the point, and actually, believe it or not, there's a point here. 
you got to know that those who choose these crooked paths will never know peace. They will never taste from the cup of joy. They will never taste from the cup of peace. Instead, it will be nothing but turmoil, turmoil for this reason. Now, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul actually quotes this in his epistle to the Romans in the context of how there is no one righteous, not even one. In fact, every Sunday in the ABCs of Salvation we quote Romans 3.10, because Paul is establishing this truth that there are no one, there is no one that is without sin. John expounds on it and takes it a step further and says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. How about that? Have a nice afternoon. I mean, just in your face. No, um, there are no one, there is no one that can say that they are without sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one is good. You might think you're a good person. You may very well be a good person. You might be a gooder person than me. I know that's not a word. Don't email me. But you'll never be good enough. You know how we say of people, oh, they have a good heart. You might want to ask Jeremiah about that. He says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. It, that's bad enough to be wicked. How about deceitfully wicked? That means that we're deceived, self-deceived. That's even worse. You know what that means? It, just like, I mean, I know this is deeply profound, but to be self-deceived is to be self-deceived. You are so good at deception that you've deceived yourself. Let that sink in. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? You have no idea. And there's no hope for you. Your heart is beyond repair. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. The heart of man. What is in the heart of man? So the next time somebody says, well, be nice about it. I mean, <laughs> the next time somebody says, oh, you have such a good heart, or they have such a good heart, just remind them, no, they don't. They have a deceitfully wicked heart. <laughs> <laughs> in Jesus' name. And say it in love, you know. <laughs> I know it packs a lot of punch, but it's true. And again, that's what Paul was saying. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, I am rotten through and through. I am deceitfully wicked. I am self-deceived. I'm so good at deception. I've deceived myself. I believe my own lies. That's how good I am. You know, that's true, right? I'm sure you have cross paths with people that are pathological liars, as we, you know, term it. <laughs> they are so good at lying that they actually believe their own lies. You know, that's possible, right? That's what being self-deceived is. I had no intention of going that far into it, but I did. So, but the Apostle Paul is essentially tasked with the same thing that the prophet Isaiah is tasked with, and that is to make this case that we are sinners. 
in need of a savior. And he quotes it in Romans 3. Let me read verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Actually, from about verse 10, I think it's through verse 18, he not only quotes this passage here in Isaiah, but he quotes from the Psalms as well. There's no fear of God in their eyes. They, they fancy themselves as being good, when in fact they are evil and full of iniquity. Verse 9, now we turn a corner here, and it's a good corner to turn. Oh, by the way, I, uh, forgive me, it's been a very long week, um, but I mentioned there were two uh, effects that knowing that God sees everything can have, uh, you know, can have on us. One good, one not so good. The not so good is that God sees everything. But the good is that God sees everything. So they are not going to get away with it. Oh, they, they think they, they've gotten away with their conception of iniquity. They've conceived, hatched these viper eggs of an evil plot. You know how we say it, they hatched an evil plot. <laughs> well, that's the good side of it, because, yeah, God sees everything you're doing. In fact, here's the thing. God knew that you were going to do that before you even knew you were going to do that. In fact, God knew you were going to do that before there was even a you to do that. How about that? He sees everything, and you're not going to get away with it. Okay, back to our Bible study already in progress. Verse 9, we turn this really good corner now, and this is their response. Therefore, verse 9, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> this is asthma again, just so you know, you be nice to me. Justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope, verse 10, for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We can relate to that here, yeah? Isn't there kind of a moaning, crying? sound and tone. I remember when we first moved here, I, I could never quite get over the sound of the doves and the, the pigeons and the minor birds, by the way. The, there's no minor birds in heaven, by the way, just so you know. I, you know, just so irritating. And anyway, enough of my problems. I, I know God created minor birds, but whatever. So the moan sadly like doves. This is a quite a, a description of 
what they were experiencing in their sinful state. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. It seems that they are finally admitting and acknowledging, at the very least anyway, the consequences and effects of their sin. And how poetic is their description of being like a blind man trying to grope around and find their way in the middle of the day. It's pitch black. They, they grope and stumble as if they have no eyes to see. And they, they growl like, like bears, and you can just kind of feel the, the frustration, the agitation, the irritation. And then they moan sadly like doves. There's just kind of a, a sad tone and moan to them, all because of the consequences and the effects of their sin. Doubtless you've heard it said. I've said it many times. I hope you don't tire of me saying it. It is so true. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Let me just kind of expand on that a little bit. It's, it's not like God saying, thou shalt not because I'm God and I said so. And in the day that thou doest this, thou shalt surely die. Whoa, man, sin. Whoa, that's bad. Yeah, it is. It's forbidden. No, it's the other way around. And it changes the whole complexion of it. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad for me. And God loves me. And God doesn't want me to suffer needlessly because of sin. One has aptly said of the Ten Commandments, they're more like the tender commandments from a tender, loving Heavenly Father who says, I love you so much and I can't stand to see you suffer unnecessarily when you commit adultery, when you covet, because coveting will eat your lunch your dinner too, and breakfast the next morning as well. And I, I love you so much. Thou shalt not covet because of what covetousness is going to do to you. And I love you, and I don't want that to happen to you. It will destroy you. Thou shalt not murder, not kill, by the way. That's a different, ah, oh, it's a whole, why did I open up that can? That's a gift. I got to get rid of that can opener. But um, thou shalt not murder. That's different than kill. Please make, note that distinction and delineation. M murder. D don't murder anyone because you will be haunted and hunted by it for the rest of your life. Your life will never be the same again. Thou shalt not commit adultery because of what adultery does to the adulterer. And I just love you so much. I don't want that to happen to you. And you can go through every single one of those Ten Commandments, the first five dealing with our love for God. And by the way, very interesting about the Ten Commandments. Uh, we studied this when we were in Exodus 20. Not so easily seen at first read, but uh, you've got the first five 
which are vertical, our loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and body. And then you have the second set, which are horizontal, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the cross. That's the cross, where Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. You got the vertical and you got the horizontal. And they can be summed up that way and fulfilled in that way. So it's like God saying, you know, this is why I don't want you to do that. This is willful disobedience. And this is what happens when you willfully disobey me. You're going to suffer the consequences. And wow, what a description, right? I mean, they look for justice, righteousness, no go. <laughs> they, they look for salvation, far from us. There is none. And that is the state of one who is walking in willful disobedience to God, walking in unrighteousness. One last thing, and then we'll move on. Think of it like this. As an earthly parent, an earthly father, an earthly mother, or even grandparent, with your children and your grandchildren, how, how much does it hurt your heart to see them suffer needlessly? Now the key word here is needlessly. Doesn't it just break your heart? And, and what do we do as parents? And we're fallen. <laughs> we're sinful. Yet we, we warn them and we instruct them and we direct them and we correct them and we try everything we can as their parents who love them so much to protect them from going down a certain path and suffering the consequences of it, the choices they make in their lives. And then when they do, and then they suffer the consequences, what, what happens to your heart? How much more does it impact the heart of God? How much more does it grieve the heart of God? I was reminded of a true story I heard from a pastor. It was actually a, another uh, pastor at a pastor's conference who shared this story about this um, young lady, beautiful lady, but was caught up in drugs. And it really showed. I mean, she was probably in her 20s, but she looked like she was in her 50s and 60s because the drugs had just taken their toll. I mean, physically on her. You know what I'm talking about. And this pastor wanted to, you know, kind of minister to her and, and was trying to share the Lord with her. And in that process of doing that, he just asked her some basic questions like, do you have any family? She said, yeah, I, I have a, a loving father and a loving mother. And he's like, well, where are they? He said, well, no, they, they told me that they had to, they, they couldn't take it anymore. They could not stand helplessly by and watch me destroy my life because it was destroying them. And they had to make the gut-wrenching, painful decision 
to just disenfranchise themselves and disconnect themselves from their daughter, whom they love very much. Because had they not done that, they would have been destroyed because of what she was doing. I mean, that really, I think, puts it into perspective. And I can understand that, how hard it is for us as parents, especially for those who have prodigal sons and wayward daughters, man. It just it is so painful. And one uh, word of hope and encouragement, by the way, God loves them more than you ever could. You need to be reminded of that. You love them. Oh, you never knew you could love so deeply. And yet you take that love that you have for them. It doesn't even come close to comparing with the love that God has for them. He loves them more than you could ever love them. And here's another thing. I'll take it a step further. He wants them right with Him more than you ever could. That's encouraging, right? Because then when, and I hope you never give up on them, never stop praying for them. Yeah, but it's been years. Don't quit. Like the parable of the persistent widow. The whole point of that was not that God is this reluctant judge to mete out justice. And he finally just, just to get this woman to stop texting him every night, all night, posting on his, you know, social media pages and, I need justice, I need justice, showing up and knocking on his door and getting past security, <laughs> calling him up all the time, even blocking the number. She figure out a way to get past that number block and call him all the time. And finally he just says, okay, fine. Here. It's not like God's like that. Never imagine God is in heaven going, okay, already stop. Can you imagine that? That would be horrible, It'd be horrifying. But what God is saying, if, if an unjust judge will do that in response to that tenacity that never, 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 never gives up. Because that's the whole point of the parable. In fact, right out of the chute, Jesus gives the point of the parable before He teaches the parable. The point of this parable is to pray and never give up. You keep praying. You keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. And that door will be opened unto you. You ask and keep on asking, you will receive. You seek and keep on seeking, you will find. So never give up. But every time you pray, you are praying in alignment according to God's will. Because God loves them. And when you pray, for them, God hears that prayer. And while God will never violate their sovereignty, their self-will, their free choice, because that's not love, right? But here's what He will do, and here's what He does do. And the testimonies are in the multitudes. How many parents can share powerful, encouraging testimonies 
about how after praying for many years, that wayward daughter came back and that prodigal son returned home, which is by the way why we have the parable of the prodigal son as we affectionately refer to it. You know what's interesting about that parable? I know I'm going way off here, but just maybe this is for somebody that needs to hear this and be encouraged by this, a word fitly spoken. You know what's really intriguing about that parable? You have to know something about the Middle Eastern customs in that day, really similar to modern day. But the father would never run to the son. That would be unthinkable. And yet in this parable that we affectionately refer to as the parable of the prodigal son, that father is actually waiting and watching for and anticipating his son's return. He had never given up. He was at the ready, watching every day. He would get up in the morning, maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day. And sure enough, one day was the day. And there he is in the driveway. It's a modern day parable. <laughs> And uh, he's wearing uh, his bathrobe. Okay, we'll just say bathrobe, his, uh, you know. And sure enough, he sees his son coming in the distance. And what does he do? So that he can run, he get, lifts up his robe so he can get to his son faster. And he runs to him. You'll never see that in the Middle East. The father does not run to the son. The son runs to the, get over here, boy. And what does the father do? How many times have I told you, boy, are you going to get a licking? I'm going to tell right now. And here's, I, okay, I have to, because it's there in the parable. Jesus taught it. He actually gives us some insight into what is going through the, the mind and the heart of the son before he goes back home. He's like, man, I have completely blown it. I have wasted all of my inheritance on partying and drugs and women, and here I am with nothing, and I am shoveling pig slop, which for a Jew, <laughs> that is anathema. Man, I could go back and my father's servants have it better than this. At least I could be a servant and that would be better than what I'm experiencing right now. But I got a problem because, man, I left and I know I broke my dad's heart. You got to know that the son knew that. It's inferred, I believe, in the, in the parable. And so he's thinking, okay, now, how do I, 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 I picture him practicing all the way back home. Okay, Dad, I'm so sorry. I, can I just be a servant? I, I, I'm so, will, will you take me back? And, and you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I, okay, I'm grounded for the rest of my known life on this earth, you know, and you're going to beat me and give me a licking and, and you're going to rub my face in it and you're going to punish me and I deserve every single bit of it, but it's still worth it. Will you please take me back? He's practicing what he's going to say, his speech all the way home. He didn't have a chance to even say anything.
picture. The father runs to him, weeps, tears of joy, hugs him, holds him, embraces him, a Velcro hug, not wanting to let him go. Even if he tried to say anything, Dad, I, no, no, shh, just, you're home. And then imagine how stunned he must have been when Dad says to his older brother, that's a whole other issue, by the way. Man, you, you guys, right now, everybody, all hands on deck. Big feast. He's home. He's back. Older brother's like, really? What's up with this? Here, I've been faithful. I didn't blow my inheritance. And <laughs> what are you doing? Why would you do this? And that's not fair. Well, life isn't fair. It reminds me of that song we taught our boys growing up. The world, it doesn't revolve around you and life. It isn't fair. But boom, boom, boom. The world, it doesn't revolve around you and life. It isn't fair. Everybody now. The world, no. <laughs> You know, they're in their 20s now, and <clears throat> that explains a lot, their behavior now. I think they are traumatized by this, but <laughs> they got it, and they know it. Life isn't fair, and the world doesn't revolve around me. The consequences of sin. You know, The bitterness of the consequences of sin lingers on long after the sweetness of the temporal pleasure of sin. Oh, sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. But in the end it is bitter as wormwood. The bitterness of the consequences of sin lingers on so much longer, infinitely longer, than just that brief season of pleasure from that sin. Well, let's move on, verse 12. They're still responding, and it's actually going in the right direction here, and gets better. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, lies, false witness, not true. Justice is turned back, verse 14, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, verse 15, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Hang on to that for a moment. I want to come back to that. That's very interesting. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it. What did the Lord see? The Lord saw that they were departing and turning from their evil, and they were now a target and a prey. 
And what was the Lord's response? And the response is that it displeased him that there was no justice. Oh wow, we have an interesting turn of events here, right? So what's happening here? They've acknowledged at the very least initially the consequences of their sin, very graphic description, and they've come to terms with it, and they've admitted it, they've acknowledged it, they've confessed it, and now they've gone from the consequences of their sin to now acknowledging their sin itself. That's what confessing sin means, by the way. It's to confess sin as sin. See, we don't want to, we don't want to call it sin. We want to call it something else that doesn't sound as bad as sin, because sin sounds bad, right? You know why sin sounds bad? Because it is. <laughs> I know. Again, deeply profound. But so we don't want to call sin or admit or confess it as sin. So we've come up with very clever words to replace the word sin, like issues. No, it's just an issue. I have some issues. Jesus came not for your issues. He came for your sins. He paid for your sins. It's not an issue. It's called, repeat after me, read my lips. <laughs> you can do it. Sin. Sin. And when you confess it as such, then now God can rush in because you've confessed it as sin and He can forgive you and cleanse you of that sin. But as long as we keep it out of the <laughs> arena of sin, it's hands off to God. I mean, when we call it everything but, and you know, it's probably one of the most familiar ways that we do this. Just stay with me. Doesn't the word adultery sound horrible? Just because it is. <laughs> Let's not call it adultery. Let's call it an affair. Oh, it just sounds so much, oh, it's just an affair. Oh, it just sounds so much better, an affair. Oh, that's a, I, yeah. I thought it was adultery. <laughs> call me silly. It's just an affair. No, it's adultery. Call it what it is. Sin. Confess it as such. Because when you do, now you place yourself on the right side of this thing. Because now justice has turned back. You're, you've turned from it and you've turned to and are on the righteous side of this now. Righteousness is returning. Justice is returning. And now you've just given God the, <laughs> I hate to use this word, but for lack of a better one, permission. Again, for lack of a better one. Because see, we tie the hands of God's forgiveness with the ropes of our unwillingness to confess sin as sin. And as soon as we confess sin as sin, then God rushes in to our defense. And now all of a sudden, because we've confessed it as sin and we've departed from evil, now we have aroused the ire of the enemy. We are now a prey. We have a target on our backs. Because think about it, the enemy now is watching us and he says, oh no, <laughs> 
they turned from evil. You guys get down there. We need to ramp up our efforts. We need to get him back where we had him, because we had him right where we wanted him. But he's repented. He's turned. He's acknowledged his sin. He's turned from his sin. And now the red light, red light, warning, urgent, urgent, target, target, pray, pray. I know you know what, what I mean when I say this and what I'm talking about when I say it. But you know how it is that whenever you set your foot in the right direction to pursue righteousness, the enemy is all over you like white on rice. I mean, how about this one? And again, I know you, you're going to know what I mean when I say this. Just set your foot to pray and watch what the enemy will do. <laughs> I mean, the phone starts ringing. That phone hasn't rung in, what, a week? Starts ringing. It's always a wrong number. Who do you think that was? The kids start fighting. The phone starts ringing. Social media starts blowing up. All hell breaks loose because all hell is literally breaking loose against you because you have departed from evil and you have set your foot to pursue righteousness. There's a proverb, this is a very loose paraphrase, it goes something like this, what you pursue pursues you. And it works both ways. You pursue evil, <laughs> okay, evil gonna pursue you. You pursue righteousness, righteousness will pursue you. It's just one of those principles and truths in God's Word. Verse 16, so now God is displeased and God is going to do something about this. But he's looking around now, verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, listen to this, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Here's the picture that's being painted here. So they've turned from evil. God now is going to rush in to their defense. And he's looking around. Is there any man that will stand in the gap as Ezekiel would write? Is there an intercessor? Is there any man that will stand in the gap and intercede and pray and lead them back to righteousness? And sadly, he looked and he did not find even one. So what's he going to do? He'll do it himself. His own arm. Absent just one man to lead Israel back to the Lord, the Lord's response in His grace and mercy, because that's who God is and that's how God is, uh, He'll do it. He has to. He can't not. I know that's not proper sentence structure, but He can't not. He will do it for them and instead of them. And verse 17 is going to be a much needed reminder of a very well-known passage in Ephesians 6 concerning the whole armor of God. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. Put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. And was clad with zeal as a cloak. This is God we're talking about. According to their deeds, verse 18. Accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. Uh-oh. Do you ever go from being angry at your enemy to feeling sorry for your enemy? Well, this is <laughs> a textbook case here because God's saying, wait, is there anyone that's going to intercede, stand in the gap and do this on their behalf? If not, I'll do it myself. And if I get in there and do it, look out. I'm going to get her done. <laughs> and this is what I'm going to do. Verse 19, and here's why I'm going to do it. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, and the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Yes, God. You mean to tell me that God's going to put on the armor? Yeah, that's what he just got done saying. And he's, gonna, he's going to fight this battle against the enemy for us and instead of us? Yeah, that's what he just said. Ooh, can I watch? Yeah, that's fine. Stand over here. Behold the salvation of the Lord. Watch me now. Verse 20. The Redeemer, this is Jesus, will come to Zion. This is a prophecy yet future about the Savior of the world. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, verse 21, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My covenant with them. Again, hang on to that. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Wow, what a way to end a chapter, and with it, the Bible study. But before I do, I think I'd be grossly remiss if I didn't just comment on this one truth, again, one that's easily missed, perhaps, at first read, concerning how it is that God is the one who makes the covenant with us. We don't make a covenant with God. Why is that important? Because we can't break a covenant we don't make. Let me say that again. We can't break a covenant we didn't make. And see, God knows that we would break a covenant that we would make, which is why it is, by the way, that when it came time to cut covenant, which is where we get the modern day expression for, hey, let's cut a deal, that comes from the book of Genesis when God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. So this is what they would do. The two parties entering into this covenant, here's what they would do. Very, 
they would take animals and they would cut them up <laughs> and, and, and kill them and take all of these parts of the animal with <coughs> all of the blood. You okay? We're almost done. And they would spread out these cut up animals and all of the blood from these cut up animals. And then both parties to this covenant would walk amongst the cut up animals with all of that blood. And they would agree that if they break the covenant, what was done to these animals will be done to me. That's called a deterrent. Are we okay with that? I don't think there would be a lot of corporate attorneys in that day, because there wouldn't be any case. It would just be, you broke the covenant, <laughs> that, that's it, you're, okay, anyway, you get the point. So, okay, so God says to Abraham, go ahead and cut the animals, we're going to cut covenant. So Abraham cuts up the animals, and he's waiting to walk amongst the animals that are all cut up with all of the blood, to cut covenant with God. And so God, before he shows up, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And he walks through the animals, and he cuts covenant. And then Abraham wakes up, and he's like, oh, what, what, what happened? Okay, it's, I, I have made a covenant with you. Yeah, but what about me? No. You're not going to make a covenant with me. <laughs> you, could, you wouldn't keep it anyway. I, I don't want to be party to your disobedience. So you don't have a covenant with me. I have a covenant with you. Now here's, here's why I wanted to comment on this. We don't make vows to God and promises to God and deals with God and agreements to God, with God and, and commitments to God because we're not going to be able to keep them. And God knows that. But conversely, God has made a covenant with us, the new covenant in His blood, by the way. He has cut covenant with us, and it will never be broken forevermore, from this time and forevermore. So we read in the Old Testament concerning the Jew. God has an everlasting covenant with the Jew. You know what that means? <laughs> Again, I know, you, you guys should know how profound I am by now, right? <laughs> an everlasting covenant is a covenant that lasts forever, everlasting. It's an everlasting covenant. That means that God is not through with the Jew. And truth be known, he, we don't want him to be through with the Jew. And that's an Arab telling you that, by the way. Because if he's through with the Jew, and he has a covenant with the Jew, and so too does he have a covenant with me and you too, and he's through with the Jew, how secure are you? Because he has a covenant with you too. Is he through with you now? You know, he, you don't want him to be through with the Jew, because if he's through with the Jew and he had a covenant with the Jew, then you're, you're through too, because he has a covenant with you. I know that's a weird way to say it, but you'll never forget it. <laughs> 
God has a covenant with us. He has made a covenant with us. And for our descendants, descendants from this time and forevermore, everlasting, never ending. There's, is he, can I just say it like this? You'll forgive my crass way of, of saying it, but it's a done deal. It is finished, signed, sealed, and delivered. That's it. That's a covenant with us. Okay, one last thing. I didn't say one last thing yet, so I got one last thing. And please hear my heart on this. I don't mean any disrespect. I, you know, God is able and has used many movements over the years. But I'm sure many of you remember the Promise Keepers movement, a men's ministry. Again, many men came to Christ. I praise God for that. But here we are all these years later, and this, I think it was seven promises of a Promise Keeper. I actually, I never went to any of them. I had friends that went to them. You know, again, praise the Lord. Um, but I read those promises, and I, I'm looking, and I have to be very open with you and say to you that when I read those seven promises, I'm like, I can't promise that. I mean, I can't keep Ten Commandments. How am I going to keep seven promises? I looked at every single one of those. And by the time I actually got through number seven, I'd already broken the first six. <laughs> yeah, and God knows that. No, no, we, we, He's made a promise to us. He's made a covenant with us. We cannot break a promise we don't make. We cannot break a covenant we don't make. We do not have a covenant with God. God has a covenant with us. That's a game changer. That should change everything. And it does. Oh, the pressure's off. Because every time I mess up and break the covenant, which is like, and I know you're more spiritual than me. That's fine. Maybe for you it's not as often, but it's every well, what time is it now? It's time to close, but <laughs> probably every hour of every day. And so do you too, actually. So don't, don't be spiritual and everything. And it doesn't matter, because the covenant is not predicated on me keeping it. He made the covenant, and it's an everlasting covenant. It's the new covenant in His blood. He cut covenant. He, he cut covenant in His blood. Why don't you stand and we'll pray. I, yeah, I did my best. What a, what a great chapter though, yeah? Man. Who, who knew, right? Well, God knew, but just obscure and tucked into this book, this one chapter, and just so much there about how God loves us and wants to spare us of needless suffering because of our sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Lord, we're, we're just in awe of you. 
just in awe, just, you are awesome, God, you are awesome. And we're going to sing and lift up our praises before the throne. Can't wait. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Lord, You are worthy. You alone are worthy. Lord, thank You for this chapter. Now you, as only you can, need to take it from here by the Holy Spirit. Don't let us leave it here and just go home and go about our day and the rest of the week and the weekend. Lord, I pray that this will have the needed impact on our lives as we take heed to Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.